All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. My name's Jordan. If I haven't got to meet you yet, man, I would love to do that afterwards. We're really glad that you're here. We are walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. We have been in it for a while, and it has covered a plethora of issues, hence the title of the series, Church Issues, because there's, Paul has been talking about a number of different things, and we have been for the last several weeks talking about spiritual gifts, and, um, and we've really... Um, slowed way down to go through this passage, if you will. We've kind of been, you know, going through at a, at a pretty reasonable speed, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and looking at issue after issue, uh, but we really are downshifting to, to set in this for a season because I believe that, that God has a lot for us to uh, receive and to implement and to um, begin to expect and, and to change for our church, frankly. And it comes at a curious season as we're talking about, you know, more prayer ministry and receiving from the Lord. It comes at a curious season when we have social distance and mask and things like that. Um, nonetheless, we believe God's word is, is timely. We believe his plan is on purpose. And so we want to lean in to what the Lord is, is doing. And we believe that this is not unrelated to all that is, is going on in the world. There, we can have a temptation to be like, oh man, do we really need to be talking about gifts, Jordan? There's all of this other stuff going on in the world that we need to address. And, and we are attempting to address lots of that through different um, ways. We've got some podcasts and different opportunities coming out to, to speak to some of the more cultural issues. And we've done that from time to time. But really, man, what our, what our world needs most and and really at its core, the only thing that will bring peace, the only thing that will bring hope and reconciliation at any level is the gospel. And, um, and so as we talk about spiritual gifts, um, they're not unrelated because it is the Lord working in and through his church to make much of his name, to shape his people, and to take his kingdom forward. That's the prayer of Jesus, that, or how he teaches us to pray, rather, that, we, uh, that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we talk about these gifts, as we look at these passages, that is our prayer. They're not disjointed like, oh, okay, we're just going to talk about, okay, how do your gifts and, you know, uh, how do we get the most out of you? No, no, as a church, as a body, how do we work together to bring the kingdom to bear in one another's lives and in the lives of the people uh, surrounding us in Illinois and really to the ends of the earth is our call as a church. And so that's where we have been and where we are still at. So if, as we read 1 Corinthians 14, um, we're going we're gonna to be in this passage for a few weeks um, Today we're going to talk about prophecy, next week we'll talk about tongues, and we're going to talk about singing, we're going to talk about orderly worship, we'll talk about uh, the curious uh, and difficult to translate um, command to women at the end of the passage, and so we'll be in this for a bit, but we're going to read the first 25 verses just to get some context, and then we're going to talk about prophecy specifically today, and so as we read this, uh, may our hearts um, be open as this is indeed the word of God, and we want to treat it as such. So read it with me, we'll pray and ask for God's help, and then uh, dive in. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Pursue love, <clears throat> as we just came off the, the whole chapter on love in, verse, in chapter 13, and earnestly, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, keep in mind, this is written to an entire church, not just one, not just the pastor. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks to men, or speaks not to men, rather, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. 
the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching is given? Uh, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle is an indistinct sound or who, who will get ready, or then who, if it's an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I know not the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and a speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. It's important to keep that in mind. That's the purpose of any of the gifts. And he's going to sort of spend a lot of time on these two in particular because they can get... Uh, confusing, and they can get to a place where people are in awe of the person exercising that gift instead of uh, the church being built up. So we move on to verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of an outsider Say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but be mature in your thinking. In your thinking, be mature, rather. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. Even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. <clears throat> Thus, tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and all outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. God, may that be true. May that be true today. May we all be forced to fall on our face at the revelation of your glory. We're not seeking any sort of sensationalism, any sort of experiences, but rather we are seeking you. And as we submit to your word, unfamiliar as some of this may be, we want to ask that we would indeed know that you are in our midst and that anybody that is visiting or new would know not that the journey is this or the journey is that, but God is present. Lord, would you do that sort of work and would you use your word to uh, just reveal yourself this morning? Would you use me to that end? Would you move me out of the way? Would you move our um, presuppositions, our biases, our traditions? Lord, would you move them to the background and would we be able to just submit and surrender to your word today? Father, and would you, through your word, shape us, mold us, and make us in to the church that you would have us to be, to the individuals that you would have us to be, to your body, Lord, that would be um, active and present in this place and beyond. Lord, we want 
more of you. We need, we desperately need more of you. And it's more and more clear as this season and this year progresses, Lord, that we will not find hope, solace, and rest in anything other than you. So we ask for that in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, if you were walking through the chapter 12 with us, you noticed every time it talked about tongues or prophecy, we sort of skipped over it, and I said, we'll get to that in a few weeks, right? Well, here we are. We're getting to it, and we've been pushing that back because 14, as you see, spends a lot of time unpacking in detail how these two gifts are to be used. Now, there is a lot of confusion. There is a lot of fear. Uh, there is a lot of misuse and abuse of these gifts in the church, and so for that reason, many of us have sort of dismissed them, pulled away, or just cho- just written them off as, uh, you know, the charismaniacs, right? And and just okay, that's what they do, but we don't need to to pursue that ourselves. And 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 I may have shared this at some point, but that was me for many years. I uh, first time I sort of encountered somebody speaking in tongues in a, in, a, in a more charismatic church. I was like, whoa, that was weird. I didn't. And then a few years, you know, a little bit later, I read this passage, particularly this this chapter, and I was like, oh, well, that's helpful. It kind of gives lanes to run in. It gives guidelines here. And I was kind of like, well, why don't they read that? I think it'd be helpful for their church. Maybe I should read it to them, but I wasn't in a position of authority, so I didn't. I just moved on and went back to my church. But um, it seemed helpful to me. And I was just like, oh, okay, cool, that makes sense. Like, it's not that they're wrong to have those gifts or exercise them. They're just kind of doing it the wrong way. They need some correction. Um, not my place, so I'll, I'll just move on. And, and I sort of stayed there for years. It's like, okay, well, you know, when it comes to tongues, when it comes to, and I was less familiar with prophecy, but and when it comes to those things, I sort of just wrote, like, yeah, there, there's, there's some churches that pursue those, and, and, you know, they should read 14, and they would have some guidelines, and maybe they wouldn't do it as much or whatever. And I just kind of wrote them off. But, but here's what the Lord did. The Lord began to bring um, some people into my life that I couldn't write off that practiced these more miraculous, if you will, or, you know, unnatural gifts. And they did it in a way that aligned with this. You know, they weren't out of order. It wasn't chaos. But nonetheless, they believed the Spirit still worked in, in miraculous ways. They, they believed the Spirit still healed people. They believed the Spirit still uh, revealed things to people. That's what prophecy is. We'll get to that in a moment. And so I, I had to deal with that because I couldn't dismiss these people. I'd, be, I'd gotten in relationship with them. I knew their theology, and it was aligned with, with mine. And yet they were pursuant of the Spirit in this way, and, and we weren't. As I told you earlier in this series, we, we sort of um, had always... Um, theologically claim to be continuationists, meaning we believe that the Spirit still works in these ways, but functionally we were more operating as cessationists, meaning we, we thought, you know, the cessationist is a camp that says God stopped moving in that way whenever the last apostle died, when the New Testament was complete. He no longer moves in those miraculous ways. He no longer speaks in those ways and heals people in those ways. That's a cessationist position. And so we, we, we claim theologically we believed he did, but we functioned as though we believed he didn't, and so um, God began to, to stir in me through these encounters with these people that I couldn't write off. Their theology was solid, and yet they were, they were um, practicing the gifts of the Spirit. They were pursuing the gifts of the Spirit in their church in what I felt like it was a healthy way. And so as I began to read this again, I was no longer just looking at rules for why those people were wrong, but I was struck by the, the command here in verse 1 that says that we should pursue love, but that we should not just tolerate Spiritual gifts, but what? So it say there, earnestly desire. And it, and, and it says the spiritual gifts, but it says especially that you may prophesy. 
And then later in verse 5, he said, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And so I had to, had to deal with that. Like, okay, this is the word of God. I submit to it. I don't bring my, you know, traditions, my presuppositions onto it and find what I want and look for confirmation bias and move on and dismiss. No, no, I have to submit to this. Have you had moments like that in your theology where you realize what you've been taught was, was not, maybe not wrong, but not complete, or maybe flat out wrong, and you had to submit to the Bible and let yourself be changed? Well, that, that's sort of where God had me. It's like, okay, we, we, have to, we have to do something with this. We can't just gloss over this lightly and like, and, and again, we, we don't want to just grasp onto this and make this our new mission statement that we're going to have sensational services and everybody's going to speak in tongues and everybody's going to prophesy and, you know, it'll be this really great experience. We don't do that either. We hold it all in tension with the rest of Scripture, but nonetheless, we don't dismiss this part of Scripture. And so this is where we are. And so uh, when it comes to uh, these sort of gifts, I understand there's a lot of confusion. Some of you may have history. I would just invite you to hang with us and, and to do exactly what I just described as to submit to the Scriptures, not, not even me. Don't Take my word for it, okay? Submit to the scriptures. Read it for yourself. I'd be glad to have conversations with you, right? We'd be glad to walk with you as the elders. We'd be glad to engage with you as we bring, you know, seek clarity and pursue um, you know, further understanding. Absolutely, but don't just take my word for it. Let's submit to the scriptures together. And so we're going to talk about prophecy this week. And what, what, we're going to define that. How, you know, how has God used that? How does he want to continue using that? What does that mean for us? We'll talk about tongues next week. It'll be fun as we get some kids getting baptized. We'll have family in. We'll talk about tongues. That'll be interesting. I just surrendered to the Lord. I was like, Lord, I kind of want to change this, and I didn't feel like he was leading to, so we'll just see how that goes. But uh, we're just going to preach the Bible. It's, about, it's God's word, not mine, so they can take it up with him. Uh, some of you are like, I'm not inviting my parents now. Uh, i tell you, it's the Bible. All right, so prophecy, what does that mean? Simply defined, here's how, we're, here, here's how Wayne Grudem in his uh, systematic theology. Here's how Sam Storms is a, is a resource that we have looked to a lot. We've put in your app. He's the one that wrote the Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts. Um, they define it simply this way. Prophecy being the human report of divine revelation. All right, So simply the speaking forth in merely human words, something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Okay, so that's kind of our working definition, but we're going to go back and look at, okay, how has God used this? What has this word meant in the past, and how do we get there and what does it mean for us today? But that's sort of the working definition because for and, and that's important to start there because a lot of you when you hear prophecy you think about predicting the future, right? How many of you that's kind of how you've conflated or that's kind of how you've related to prophecy is is the predicting of the future? That's pretty common is, is sort of how we, we think about it and and that's it's not less than that. It certainly has been used in that way. Um, quite a lot, especially in the Old Testament. But even in the Old Testament, it's, it's not just that. Okay, so in the Old Testament, we have what we know as prophets, right? And so if you remember when we talked about apostles, we talked about how there is an office of apostle that has the capital A that was set aside for a specific number of men that, that were eyewitnesses that were with Jesus, saw his resurrected self, and were commissioned by him. That was a specific number, and that that office is closed. There will be no more capital A apostles, right? But then we talked about how there's still sort of a gift of apostleship, meaning you know, to send out uh, somebody to do a new work, to begin a new church, that sort of thing. Uh, but we generally just call them church planners and missionaries, things like that. And so it's similar with um, this gift where there, there's prophets, right? And there is a specific group of people that were used in this role, and that is no longer open for new recruits, right? So there were prophets that were used in the Old Testament and there was a specific group of them, and they were God's 
mouthpieces. God would reveal his truth to them. He would speak to them, and they would be the ones to deliver that truth to God's people, sometimes vocally and sometimes through writing. If you are kind of familiar with the makeup of your Bible, a lot of the Old Testament is, is prophets, right? It's, it's their names. Isaiah was a prophet. Jeremiah was a prophet. Hosea, Amos, and on, there's major prophets, minor prophets. They're all prophets. And what were they? Well, they were, they were people that God revealed his truth to, um, and that was teaching sometimes, right? This is how God wants his people to act. And then other times it was indeed the future, right? Here's what's coming. God's people, you need to prepare, right? It was God's judgment oftentimes. And, and, and they would say, thus saith the Lord. That's how the King James would phrase it, right? Your Bible probably says that they would come and say, God says this. And they would come to a people and say, hey, God says you all are living out of line with how God's called you to. You either repent or God's going to bring judgment. Or they would say, hey, God says because you've done this, God's bringing this judgment, prepare yourself. Or God says there's a famine coming, prepare yourself. So on and so forth. I think one... Uh, Scholar counted up in the Old Testament, there was around 221 times that, that the prophet said, thus saith the Lord, and then brought forth God's message. And so um, this is how we got our Bible. That was authoritative word of God. People uh, were, were not allowed to, like, if, if, if indeed this was, this was God's messenger, because there was false prophets, right? Um, especially in the New Testament, we see warnings for false prophets, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But if this is God's man and he's indeed speaking through him, then this is authoritative. It becomes the word of God. We submit to it, and it is without error. That is, that is the Old Testament um, idea of, of prophets speaking prophetically or, or delivering the word of God it is without error. And, and man, it is full of predictions of the future. So what we need to get from that is that God has always loved to reveal himself as one who knows the future, as one who knows what's coming and actually reveals it to his people. That has always been a part of how God has revealed who he is. Isaiah 46 um, verses 9 and 10 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no, no one like me. I'm a God who is declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, and, my, and saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. What does that mean? God says, hey, there, I am God, and there's nobody else like me. And here's one of the ways you're going to know that, because I know the, the end from the very beginning, and I'm going to tell it. I'm going to tell from ancient times what is coming in um, the future, and it's going to happen. That's going to be one of the ways that you can say that is the real, true God, is God prophesies, he says these things are going to happen, and then they happen, right? Uh, roughly uh, around 25% or so of your Bible at the time it was written was prophecy, meaning it, it had not yet come to pass, but this was God saying this will happen, right? And we know this. This is one of the most um, you know, convincing apologetics, if you will, for people exploring Christianity. You'll, you'll find um, um, there's, a, there's a book um, called Seeking Allah, uh, Finding Jesus. You, you know, uh, there's Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel and, and these guys who came in with a posture of, I'm going to disprove Christianity. I'm going I'm to study historical documents. I'm going to dive in deep, and, and I'm going to prove that this is hogwash, right? I'm going to prove that it's wrong. Well, what happens when they get in there and they start studying well, the word of God proves true, and they see how that generations and hundreds of years before, God had said through his prophets that these things would happen, and then they have to look and historically go, 
these things happen. And when that just piles up and piles up and piles up, they're left with evidence, as one of Josh Mandel's books said, evidence that demands a verdict, right? They're left with this evidence that they have to deal with. And many of them surrender to Jesus as Lord through that. So God uses his, his uh, ability to reveal the future. He uses that powerfully in the coming of his kingdom, in the revealing of who he is. He's always done that. We know that from, from many of the, the things, particularly most, uh, many of the prophecies were about Jesus. Right? That, that years before, uh, Isaiah has a ton of prophecies, but many of the other um, prophets do as well. But, but things like the fact that Jesus would be born of a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem. That's not just a song we sing, but that was a prophecy given hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. It also said that a little boy would go to the temple that was later destroyed in, AD, in 70 AD. Like Those things were predicted, and Jesus indeed, indeed fulfilled those. It said that Jesus would ride into town on a donkey, which he later did. It said that he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, which indeed he was. It says that he would be hung on a cross. It says that he would be crucified between two thieves, and then that he would rise from the death. I mean, these are incredible prophecies, incredible prophecies with incredible Specificity, like God was not general, like, oh, that could fit in there. He, he gave very specific foretellings of what would happen in the future. So this is a part of the nature of God, the movement of God in God's people, in, in history to reveal himself in these ways. Okay, that's sort of Old Testament, the way that God has approached uh, his people and the way that he revealed his people. And then when we come to the New Testament, it shifts a bit. No longer do we submit to prophets in the New Testament. Rather, it becomes the apostles. It becomes those 12 men plus Paul that, that, that God gives authority and commissions to start the church, to write the rest of the Bible, which we have the New Testament, and it becomes authoritative, and, and it becomes we, we submit to the authority of the apostles and no longer prophets. Well, so what is, what's happening there? Well, God is, is moving from this place of, of giving his word to uh, these people call prophets so that they can declare it to the people. And instead, he's establishing churches. He's, esta- he's going from just one nation of Israel where he could send a prophet to speak to them. And he's going to uh, a kingdom that is going to go throughout all nations. So he starts to uh, plant churches. Well, he changes the, the approach of it. He uses these 12 men to uh, finish the rest of the scripture, to reveal his plan, to speak authoritatively. And we submit to that. We stand on this as our final authority. And so one question that comes up when we start talking about prophecy and like, okay, God's going to give somebody a word. We go, okay. And a lot of people will say, no, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, so we don't believe God moves in that way. Those things are not in contradiction. Okay, that's what we're going to have to see a little bit. They're not. So we absolutely, if you're already wondering, like, was well, this, I thought this church believed the Bible and they thought the canon was closed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We believe this is complete. It will not be added to. If somebody attempts to add to it, it's going to go really, really bad for them. Okay, it will go really, really bad for the person who tries to add to God's word. And so, but, and so what, what he does is he moves from this, this ministry of, of having a prophet to speak to God's people, and he moves to the apostles, writing the rest of the word, and then we have this, this uh, lowercase gift, the spiritual gift of prophecy. So what is that? What, what does that mean? Well, it, it continues to be a part of how God works in and of the church and in through the church and through the ones he's called to plant the church is, is revealing things that perhaps aren't in the scripture about specific issues, whether to send this person out or whether to do this ministry or, or so on and so forth, go to this place, don't go to this place. God continues to speak 
prophetically. We see in the, uh, the, the, the sermon at Pentecost, right, when the, when the Spirit comes, that Peter gets up and delivers a sermon explaining what is happening, and he uses the book of Joel, another Old Testament prophet, a prophet, to talk about what is happening. And, and one of the things that he quotes is that when the Spirit of God comes, that, that men and women will begin to prophesy, like that there will be this movement where God gives the Spirit not just to one or, or a few people to sort of lead everybody else the way that he did with Moses and the prophets and the, you know, uh, you know, different offices in the Old Testament. Rather, he's going to give his spirit to everybody because atonement has been made, right? Jesus has made a way for all of us to be brought near to God and to receive the spirit of God. And so because of that, he's going to give his spirit to, to everyone, and God is going to begin to move through these people in such a way that his word is made manifest to the world. So what, what does that look like? What is and, and so some people would just explain this off as this is, uh, teaching, right? That they'll, they'll, they'll say that the gift of prophecy today means teacher. I, I remember I was caught off guard by this. I was in a, a college Bible study, and I was working through my call to ministry. I kind of knew that was a thing, and I'd done a little bit of ministry work at that point. But we, uh, we, we were in this Bible study, and we took a spiritual gifts inventory. Anybody ever taken one of those? You guys just asleep? I'm sure this crowd, you guys have taken one of those. I need to know. Come on. Anybody ever taken a spiritual gift? There you go. Thank you, thank you. So I take one of these, and, and we're going through, and, 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 and it reveals, like, I get my results, and it's like, you have the spiritual gift of prophecy. And I was like, I don't think I do. Like, I, I don't predict the future. And I was really confused. And the teacher was like, no, that just means you're a teacher. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't, well, it was just, there's a teaching gift, too, so I don't understand the difference. But it's kind of moved on. But, but I think there's, there's a reductionistic approach to that and says, okay, you know, this is what this means. I think, indeed, prophecy is used to teach but, but the way that Paul is describing this here in this passage, in the examples we see throughout the, the rest of the New Testament, this is not just a delivery of the Word of God. This is something that is, that is a revelation brought to mind by God and then spoken to his people, spoken to the church, and, and it's not just an explanation of the Scripture. Okay, Paul says, he talks about the secrets of our hearts being revealed in verse 24 and 25. We'll get to that in a little bit. He talks about if a revelation is given. Um, this, is, this is language where we're led to believe if you honestly, I think, objectively come to the scriptures and study it, where God um, continues to reveal himself, continues to show himself as a God who knows all he knows your secrets, he knows the future, and occasionally he uses that knowledge to bring glory to himself and to bring people to himself. So what does this look like? Well, it, it, it looks like God using his people and giving them a, a revelation, right? Spontaneously bringing something to mind that they are then compelled to share with either an individual or with the church at large. And it's always used for the edification of the church. Okay, so a couple of questions to, to sort of ease your mind. There um, are a couple of you know, explanations to sort of ease your mind before we go any further. What, 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 is this, what, what does this mean? Does this mean that just anybody can prophesy? Well, any, any believer, indeed, it, it does seem to say that any believer can uh, be used by God given the gift of, of the spiritual gift of prophecy. Does that mean that they are a prophet? I don't believe so. I think God, or uh, you know, Paul here gives um, the, the impression that there are some who who uh, consistently operate in, and God consistently sort of uses to work as as 
you know, exercising the gift of prophecy. Um, I, I still probably wouldn't call them a prophet because I think it's conflated to the Old Testament idea of authority, and, and it's not the case. So the New Testament use of a prophecy is no longer authoritative in the way that the Old Testament use of prophecy was. The Old Testament prophets had authority as thus saith the Lord. New Testament use of the gift of prophecy is not like that. It is subjected to, filtered by the Word of God. The apostles were given the authority. The apostles wrote the scriptures, and we submit to them. Okay? So what that, what that means is, indeed, God may use he may give somebody the gift of prophecy, and they may consistently hear from the Lord and for the good of the church. Or, Paul says, he desires that all should have this, this, this experience, this gift. And so it is indeed something that, that men and women all throughout the church like, can be used by God in these instances to reveal that God is all-knowing, that God is, is, is in the future, and that he's working in this way. And he uses it in, in incredible ways, but always for the edification of his church, for the building up of his kingdom, never just for the show, for the sake of that individual. Okay? So you, you want when it comes to authority, if somebody feels like they're given a, a prophecy, they should not come at it authoritatively. They should not say, you should not say, hey, the Lord has told me this. The Lord says this, because you don't have that authority. You were not, you're not writing a book of the Bible. You're not given that authority. So you should not come with that sort of posture. Hey, let me tell you what God has said. Instead, the people can humbly come and say, hey, I believe that the Lord may have given me a word for you or for the church. May, may, I, may I share that with you? Well, then, what, what do we do with that? Well, we test that, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20 says, don't despise prophecies. Don't despise them. Where he's, earlier, he said, don't quench the spirit. And we have some work to do there as a church. Like, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecy. Some of you have good reason to despise prophecy. You've been in places where it has been really abused, and you've seen really whack job people running in directions that you can never go, and you've seen them say things that did not come true. And so you're like, man, I kind of do despise prophecy. Some of you, that's, that's just true. I'm like, I, if somebody says that, I'm, you're already sort of got a resistance in you. And, and, and that, that's, honestly, that's, that's like, understandable. But the Bible says, hey, don't despise prophecy, but rather test all things by the word of God. So what does that mean? It's, well, we're not just going to have open mic night where you get up and get a chance to prophesy, and if it comes true, you go to the next round, right? Like American Idol style. Stole that from another preacher, but that was funny. Like, it's not what we're going to do. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it would, it would be rare that we would share something like this in a gathering like this. Now, there may be smaller group gatherings, maybe Journey PM, where we're sort of, um, and, and we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this in coming weeks at the end of 14 of how God wants us to implement these things into the church. But we're not just going to set a mic up here, and if you feel like, okay, God giving you a word, you get to come up. No, no, that would always come through one of the elders, okay? It always come through one of the elders. If, if you feel like God has given you a word, you, you could, you're welcome to approach one of the elders, and we would make that. We'll sort of build out some, you know, if we're, Doing that, we'll, we'll, we'll make that clear how you do that. But the elders would then test that through the word of God. Why? Because this is our authority, not what you think you heard from God. Okay? Period. This is our authority, not what you think you heard from God. Okay? And so in, in the New Testament, the elders are given the authority to govern the church, to, to steer the doctrine, to steer the direction of the church. And elders are required to be able to teach. It says nothing about them being able to prophesy. Okay? The one of the requirements for an elder is to be able to teach. They are the ones we, that hold the authority 
uh, to govern the church, right? It doesn't mean they're perfect, but, we, but they do so through the word of God. Meaning they need to be able to, to interpret this, to explain this, and, to, and, to, say, and to, to filter any word from anybody through this to say, okay, well, we're, we're going to hold off on that. We're gonna, we're, let, let's, let's think some more on that. Right? Because the, the authority is given to the word, not, you know, the scripture is not the word that you believe you have received. And so the authority is given to the elders, not to the prophets. That's interesting. In the New Testament, it doesn't say the prophets are going to run the church, right? It doesn't say that those who have prophecy will run the church. Why? Because this is not authoritative words from God. God may give you a revelation, but you may interpret it really wrongly. Okay? His revelation won't be wrong. God doesn't mess up, send the wrong message, but you might mess it up in your interpretation. You might bring your own biases in. You might, you know, interpret it wrong. You might apply it wrongly. So we, how, do we, how do we handle that? Well, we test it through the word of God. Very, very simply, this is our authority. We test everything through that. And what are you talking about, Jordan? What does this even mean? How does this play? I'm going to give you a few examples as we sort of uh, wrap up here. Uh, I think the, the way that, that God um, shows up in these ways, we, we see um, Paul talking about here is that it should be something that proves God's existence. It's a word that shows up to, to a people that have perhaps been wondering if God is indeed present. Like we don't question his existence, but is he still here? Is he, is he listening? Is he a part of our... And God shows up to speak in specific ways to prove that he is indeed here and present. And, and, and he moves in those ways. And, and so uh, different types of prophecy, very, very briefly, uh, it could indeed come as conviction. Right? So Paul says in 24 and 25 that um, if an unbeliever comes in and, and somebody is prophesying, then he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all because the secrets of his heart are disclosed. That's crazy. Maybe you've experienced that. It's likely that you haven't. But this is the idea that somebody would be speaking or somebody would come up to you and say, hey, God revealed this to me about you. And you're like, whoa, nobody knew that about me. Well, God did. Right? So God uses this for Conviction, right? He gives Peter the, you know, when Ananias and Sapphira are sort of robbing God in this moment of the early church, he gives Peter the revelation that, 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 hey, they're robbing God. And Peter calls them out. God strikes them dead. It's this incredible moment. We see um, that, that Paul will be ministering, and he, he sees the young woman, and she's doing this, and God reveals to him that, okay, she's possessed by a demon. So he calls her out. We see God moving in these ways. Uh, there's some stories by uh, written uh, by Charles Spurgeon, who is like the prince of preachers, who is uh, respected across most denominational lines, is not a, a, in fact, he would probably label himself, we don't know, he'd probably label himself as a cessationist closer than he would to a continuationist, right? He was not a huge uh, proponent of experiential worship and, and you know, th those sorts of things. And yet there is several stories of him preaching to a room full of thousand people, the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Tabernacle, in, uh, in London, and, and, and as he was preaching to thousands of people, God would give him a word and say, there's someone here who, and, and there's a specific story, he says, there's someone here who last Sunday has a shoe shop, and they kept that shoe shop open, and they sold a pair of shoes for nine pence, and, and four of those were, were profit, and God wants you to know that he sees you, and that was wrong, and you need to repent. And this dude has stumbled into the church for the first time ever, and, and as Spurgeon is preaching, he, he feels compelled to say that, and this guy's like, Holy cow, nobody knew that, right? Nobody was there. And, and so he is, is brought to repentance. He's, in church, he's closing a shop next Sunday. He's in church every week from there on out. He comes to trust in Jesus, which is what Paul says will happen. If indeed the secrets of your heart are revealed, you're going to go, whoa, God is real, and I'm going to 
worship him. And that would be one of the ways that God uses prophecy in today's world to speak that sort of conviction. It, it also, it, verse 31, uh, it says, for all and prophesy one by one uh, in order, we'll get to that, so that um, all may learn and be encouraged. So it can just be practically used to, to teach, right, to help bring understanding. We see in Acts 13 that the church is together praying, worshiping in a worship service, and God sets apart Paul and Barnabas for this ministry. We, so it can be used for direction of ministry, right, where God speaks to the church and reveals to them, hey, set these men apart and send them out on this ministry. It can be used for warnings. In Acts 21, we see Agabus, who is a guy who's given a couple different prophecies. He gives one earlier that a famine would come. This is in the New Testament. He says, hey, church of God, a famine is, is coming. You need to prepare for it, and you need to help your brothers in this way. And, and I'll be honest, there was a, there's a recent story of a guy, I don't know what state he was in, was, was, say, was saying today that a famine was, was going to come, right? That, that this was going to happen in the United States, and it was going to lead to this, and that Christians need to prepare. And there was part of me, because I've been studying this, and I'm like, what do we do with that? But, but I, here's the deal. I don't know that guy. I don't, give, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know his character. I cannot vouch for him. I, he's not in our local church. Um, it would be one thing if God gives that vision to one of you that we know well, that is, that's never had a, that's always had a reputation for loving the word of God and never seeking sensationalism. We've got to deal with that, right? We've got, we got to seek that. But that guy's not a part of our church. We don't, like, so I think if God wants us to know that, he'll, he'll confirm that through different local bodies. But So, you know, I sort of just... Moved on from that. But, but in this instance, Agabus speaks, says, there's going to be a famine. It comes to pass. Well, in, in Acts 21, he's telling Paul, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to end up with your feet bound in front of this group of people. It's going to go badly for you. Now, there's some interesting dynamics to that story. They don't have time to, to work out. I think there was some interpretation. Like he thought it, you know, God revealed this, and he thought it meant this, and Paul goes anyway. And anyway, but, but in, indeed, it serves as a warning that, hey, if you do this, this will happen. And so God indeed does that. We see in 1 Timothy 4, 14, that one of Timothy's gifts was given to him through a prophecy, right? That as they were laying hands on him, God um, sent a prophecy to speak this over him, and he received uh, a spiritual gift through that impartation. It doesn't mean we do that at will, right? And none of this is at will, right? You don't elect yourself as a prophet, right? If, somebody, if somebody's doing that and saying, hey, you know, I'm a prophet, you need to listen to me, you're going, mm, no, I, you know, flag on the play, I I, I, that's not how this works, right? And, but but in, sometimes God gives you these words and you have, you have no choice but to sort of bring them forward and, and, th and that can indeed be true. He can use it, uh, prophecy for encouragement and exhortation. Prophetic utterances will edify, exhort, and console. If you see um, back from verse 3 where it says, um, the one who prophesies speaks, or speaks to build up or further people to upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So here's, here's how this works. This is probably the most common way that I think the Lord wants to work through his church is when people are suddenly confronted with an inescapable reality that God truly knows their hearts and has heard their prayers and is intimately acquainted with all of their ways, then they are encouraged to press on or to persevere. I, I, I'm going to summarize this because I'm running out of time, but there's a story from this, this woman I follow online who's a professor at a college, and she, she, she's not in uh, some, you know, over-sensationalist lanes. Her theology is similar to ours, but she shares a story of being compelled to give a specific uh, student $40. Give this student $40. And so she just does it. Well, the student begins to weep. She just begins to weep. And she tells her that, that she's a single mom. She's been evicted. She's not sure how she's going to buy diapers. And that her and her friend, she hasn't been to church in years. She's not sure what she believed. But she was telling her friend. She'd asked somebody else for help. They couldn't. She was telling her friend about this. And her friend said, well, maybe we should pray. And just before they came into class, they had prayed, God, will you help? 
And then God lays on this teacher's heart to give her $40, and she just begins to weep and, and, and plugs her into the local church. She gets saved. She's in, like, there's this redemptive story. It's not just this one-off thing. God has a purpose for it. Uh, there are other stories. Perhaps you have some like that. I will, I'll share a, uh, briefly share a, a personal way that in the midst of me studying this and knowing this was coming, that God did just exactly that, where my heart was sort of struggling with some doubt, wondering, not does God exist, but what are you doing? Why do these things happen? I still, like, you still want me going forward. Like, after our founding pastor, Darren, died a few weeks ago, you know, I had some immediate work to do with just talking to some of our people and, and things like that. But the next day, man, I was really struggling with my own emotions and that, my own workings of that and my, my the influence that he'd had on me and, and just, okay, what does this mean? I was just really, I was struggling. And my wife and a couple personal friends can attest to that. I was really struggling. And all of a sudden, I get a text at about 9.50 at night um, from a guy who I know personally, but we're not close. We haven't talked in a couple years. And when we do, it's just like we, we run into each other. But he, he just sends a text and says, brother, I may be off on this. And if so, just know that you're being prayed for. But I have a very strong impression that the Lord wants you to know this, this, and this. And it wrecked me. It wrecked me. Because he had no business knowing those things. The specific language that he used the, the prayers that matched the, the journal entries that I had from earlier that day, from my own heart cry, like, it was just God saying, Jordan, I, I see you, and I hear you, and I'm still with you, very simply. And I said, brother, you, you know, and he said, just, I, I try to swing at every pitch, and so if I'm wrong, just know you're being prayed for. I said, brother, you're not wrong, that God used that immensely, and, and, uh, and, and I just kind of had to surrender to that. Because indeed, that was God showing me, hey, I, I, I still see you. I'm here. I care for you. And that is, that is the way that God, I think, wants to use this gift a lot in his church. It, it's not always about coming up front and saying this about the future or that. No, I think it, it's a lot of times it is personal, right? That as we seek uh, the Lord, that he will reveal things for an individual in our community group or our church or, or our, our family and say, hey, I think the Lord has this word for you. And we, again, we, we present it humbly. Right? Not thus saith the, the Lord. John Piper has a story of a woman who came up to him whenever his wife was pregnant with her fourth child that said, hey, your, uh, your wife's going to have a daughter and she's going to die in childbirth. And they were in this season. He was trying to teach his church just like I am right now. He was trying to teach his church how to walk through this. And he was like, well, Lord, what do I do with that? Right? He goes to his office and just weeps and surrenders. And he's like, I, he didn't even tell his wife because he's like, I don't want her bearing that. And, and you know, it, it, it turned out that they had a boy, and she lived, right? So there was, there, there are missed opportunities. I don't think she had, you know, malintent, but she was wrong. There are false prophets who have malintent, right? There are whole religions founded on false prophets, right? And that's how you sort of know, are they true or are they, are, are they a true prophet or are they false? Well, first of all, you say, do they align with or do they contradict the word of God? Because if they contradict the word of God, you can write them off as a false prophet, right? Joseph, what's his face, that founded Mormonism? False prophet, Okay, that's like he says, I got this revelation from God, and yeah, all of this, but we're going to add this to it. You go, no, 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 nope, nope, we don't add to this. You don't affirm Jesus as Lord, the Son of God that was raised from the dead, you saying there's more to it? Nope, we're writing you off, false prophet, right? Muslims, like they follow the prophet Muhammad, right? He is a false prophet. Why? How do I know that? Because he doesn't affirm the truth of the scriptures. He doesn't affirm Jesus as the Son of God. 
So there are false prophets. We do need to be on guard for that, but we also shouldn't despise them. We shouldn't despise them. Rather, we test them through the word of God, and we seek them. We seek to operate in this way. So we'll talk a little bit more about how this practically plays out in the coming weeks, but, but here's how I want to end. And some of you are like, seriously, Jordan, I, why, why are we talking about this right now? There's so much that are, like, some of you might be saying, doesn't the world just need the gospel, Jordan? And I would say, absolutely, they need the gospel. Absolutely, that's what we need, that's what they need, and that is why this is so important. Because what God wants to do is to wake his church up, to move in his church in such a powerful way that we leave these doors knowing, as it says in 24 and 25, that God is real, that God is present, and he's on the move. He has a message of hope, a message of reconciliation, and he wants us to be the ones who tell the world. So we seek him, we seek his movement, we seek his spirit for empowerment so that our world might seek some healing and might find some healing. We might be the ones who preserve this broken world until he comes back and sets it all right. Listen, church, the world is in a mess right now, but that doesn't mean the kingdom isn't present. That doesn't mean that he isn't at work. John the Baptist had doubts later when he was in prison. He was like, man, I don't know if Jesus really is the one because things aren't happening that I thought were happening. Jesus sends back to him. He says, hey, the dead are raised, the blind receive their sight, and the gospel's being preached to the poor. The kingdom is here. The same is true for us. It doesn't matter who gets elected. It doesn't matter what happens with corona. It doesn't matter what comes in the future. Jesus' kingdom is here. It is present, and we are called to be a part of furthering that kingdom, period. And we have hope in that, we stand firm on that, and we seek confirmation of that. And the Lord wants to reveal himself to us. He wants to, to move us along. He wants to be powerfully present in the midst of his church. So don't despise prophecies. Don't despise them. Seek the Spirit of God. Worship with abandon. Worship as though Jesus is indeed still alive. Death is defeated, and the King is alive. That's the message. We're not here to oh, watch Jordan prophesy or watch. No, no, no. If it, if it doesn't bring glory to Jesus being alive, then we just dismiss it and move on because that's the point. That we would know, we would be reminded of, and others would know that Jesus is alive and that salvation is found in him. Let's pray. God, make this true. Make our hearts aware of you. Lead us to worship. We need you, Jesus. We believe you're present, but may we leave here without a doubt. As we lean into your word as a church, would you shape and mold us, Lord? Do your work in this place. Whatever that work is, we surrender to it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond.